old Adelheid had traveled all the way from Cologne to Siegburg on foot. The arduous journey had visibly exhausted the widow. But if she did not find justice in Cologne, then hopefully would the city lord, Archbishop Anno, who currently resided here in Siegburg on the Michaelsberg in his new monastery foundation. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany that's already over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as quite of a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. First of all, guys, I'm very sorry that this episode is one or two days late. I had a lot of private stuff in my life going on. Well, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. One famous man once said, I think it was John Lennon. But yeah, today we will deal with the aspects that took place in Cologne during the reign of Anno II. Buildings, activities, trade, art, etc. Enjoy. But before we begin, first back to the widow Adelheid from the intro. Why had she gone all the way to Siegburg? A rich man had tricked her out of her property, which she had once inherited from her late husband. Enraged by this deed, she had gone to court, but the jurors there, who administered justice in the city on behalf of the archbishop, had simply dismissed her justified complaint. Thus, Adelheid had made the then long journey to Siegburg. The town was located 25 kilometers southeast of Cologne and experienced a period of prosperity at that time. In 1060, Archbishop Anno II of Cologne had snatched the town and its castle on the Michaelsberg from the Itzonitz, Henry, because he had lost a military conflict against Anno. Since the Itzonitz were now eliminated as rivals in the region, the military use of the castle on this Michaelsberg, Michael's Hill, ceased, and so Anno had founded a Benedictine monastery here on the Michaelsberg, the Michael's Hill in English, in 1064 AD. Here Anno not only physically found a new monastery, but in doing so he also implemented his own model of Benedictine monastic reform, the so-called Siegburg Reform. I am not a theologian, so I cannot say much about it. However, it is said to have been similar to the goals pursued by the reforms of the monastery movements of Cluny and Gorze. We already had that in an earlier episode. Here on the hill of Michaelsberg stood Adelheid now. Very exhausted, she stepped in front of Archbishop Anna II. That she was exhausted, I can personally well understand. I myself have only recently walked up the steep path to this monastery on that hill, which still exists today. When Anno asked Adelheid to present her request, the widow fell to her knees before the Cologne city ruler and described what she considered to be an outrageous incident. And lo and behold, Anno was visibly moved by Adelheid's fate 
even more, he was extremely angry. He was Cologne city lord, but in the meantime, the Archbishop of Cologne had to administer and rule over a widely ramified territory. As an imperial bishop, he exercised secular official functions in addition to his spiritual duties. Thus, Anno had to resort to servants and lay assessors who regulated everything on the spot in his stead. But the lay assessors, the jurors in Cologne, had probably failed. The next day, Anno summoned these Cologne jurymen to Siegburg and publicly confronted them. But lo and behold, the man who owed their political rise and our powerful post to him alone, Anno II, lied to the archbishop and denied everything. What an affront! Yet Anno already had a rather difficult standing uh, with the Cologne city population because of his foreign origins. Unlike in Siegburg, not everyone was as welcome to him in the city on the Rhine as a southern German and not really high nobleman, he came from lower nobility. Anno knew he had to set an example so that this would not happen again, so that his power in Cologne would not be questioned. To the horror of the jurymen, who in the morning were still well fed and served by servants at a lavish breakfast in Cologne, Anno judged as follows. As punishment for their misdeeds in ignoring the widow's suffering and for having lied to Anno, all the jurymen had their eyes gouged out. All but one. A former servant of Anno, whom he had made a juryman for his lawyer's services at the time, he gouged out only one eye. How nice, actually. Why? Well, in this way, the one-eyed man was to lead his now fully blind colleagues back to the city of Cologne. So the widow Adelheid got her justice after all, and Anno had shown everyone how just he could be. Well, from today's point of view, perhaps a reminder or disciplinary proceedings would be more appropriate than gouging out one's eyes, but who am I to judge? You can guess, this was, of course, a legend about Anno II. A legend that the Cologne author Goswin Peter Garth, among others, recorded in his book about the legends of the city of Cologne, from which I was inspired here in the narrative. But even if it was only a legend, poking people's eyes out was really something Anno liked to do in real. But about that, in the next episode. What is true about the legend, however, is that for a long time the archbishops of Cologne had not only been powerful rulers over the city of Cologne alone, mostly by the grace of the emperor and their proximity to him, they had been accumulating more and more power for centuries, so much so that they were now able to pursue their own power and territorial policies without direct imperial permission. Anno II was now one of the first archbishops of Cologne to actively pursue his own territorial policy, and thus made the archbishopric of Cologne and secular possessions one of the most powerful political players in the empire. Thus, the foundation of the monastery described here was also no fiction. Today's city of Siegburg, including the large monastery complex on the Michaelsberg hill, is still one of the clearest legacies of Anno's great power, 
which he exercised in the Rhineland in the second half of the 11th century. And the monastery still exists today, not only as a building, but really as an institution. I'll post some pictures of it on social media and, of course, on the homepage. Uh, but please don't be harsh on me. It will take some time until I updated the homepage because, as I said, this episode is delayed and I have a lot to work this week. Maybe I will do it uh, one by one and update the homepage uh, over the week, hopefully. But, as I said... It won't be there the same moment when the episode comes out. Let's take a breath for a short while. In the 11th century, Cologne was one of the most important market towns in Europe. Trade at that time was an extremely expensive undertaking until well into the early modern era, before there were extensive canal networks, railroads and steamships. Trade was mostly in goods that also promised good profits. This often meant luxury items such as textiles, jewelry or wine, or goods that could be preserved for a long time such as pickled or cured fish. Unfortunately, it is only in the late Middle Ages that one can prove a more precise trade volume and what, who traded and how. However, due to Cologne's location on the Rhine and its access to the North Sea and thus also England and the Baltic Sea, the trade routes can be roughly traced for this period as well. In the late Middle Ages, Cologne would have the most extensive trade network of any German city anywhere. Even in the 18th century, a period still considered a time of decline for the city, Cologne merchant ships delivered goods such as wine as far as India and America. While we are on the subject of merchants, in Anno's time they, personally the merchants, traveled with their goods on their ships. So the Cologne merchants got around to some extent in the then known world. Of course, the Cologne merchant class was only a wealthy minority within the larger city population. But the previous way of working of the leading class of Cologne merchants was soon to change. The upper merchant class now stayed in Cologne for the whole season in the near future. From here, they managed the trading company, often maintaining several ships so that they could no longer necessarily be present at all transactions. On board, employees now ensured that trading was carried out in the interests of the respective boss of a trading company. In the future, the merchants increasingly resided in Cologne the whole year or most of the year. This, of course, meant that in addition to their ever-increasing wealth, they would also inevitably demand more political say in their hometown. A preview of coming events in the next episode. But not only the trade in goods flourishes, the art trade also flourished in the city at this time, especially the book painting. Here books are decorated and equipped with paintings. In the monasteries and convents, the nuns and monks living there painstakingly produce beautifully decorated book covers, decorate written and general drawings. In Anno's time as Archbishop, Cologne's book painting has long been considered one of the best in Western Europe. 
especially the monasteries of St. Pantaleon, Great St. Martin, were to be mentioned here. Above all, the Hitda Codex, which an abbess of the same name donated to her convent in Meshede, should be mentioned here. I'm going to put some examples of this on the homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com, in the corresponding post for this episode number 46. You can find it on, as I said, thehistoryofcologne.com, or directly as a link in the show notes. Because I'm absolutely no art historian, and I know that some of you are listening from this genre, so I better keep a low profile before I get um, evil messages on Instagram. But what I can say, the paintings are really beautiful. I just have no idea what are the specific details of it. The famous motif from the Hitda Codex is the ship in the storm, a reference to a biblical scene in which Jesus, together with his disciples, crossed the Sea of Galilee by ship and got caught in a storm. Jesus was asleep and was awakened by the frightened disciples. For them, he had only words of rebuke for their fear of the storm. Thereupon, he got up and ordered the wind to become calm, which was done immediately. As said, a scene from the New Testament, which was all too familiar to the people at that time. In the episode before, we had experienced Anno as a powerful imperial prince and even de facto regent of the empire. However, from the year 1065 onwards, Anno lost much of his previously accumulated power at the imperial level. Don't misunderstand, Anno continued to be one of the most powerful people in the empire as Archbishop of Cologne, but with Henry IV now full-fledged ruler, Anno no longer had the same position of power at least at the imperial level as he had three years earlier when he had kidnapped the young king in Kaiserswerth. Thus Anno shifted his main focus increasingly to Cologne and the Rhineland, his direct sphere of power as Archbishop of Cologne and Imperial Prince. Anno's increased attention to Cologne can also be seen in many places in part to this day in terms of building policy. Most clearly in the south of the city, with the former canons monastery of St. George. In Anno's time, in the second half of the 11th century, St. George was still located just outside south of the Roman city wall, directly on the Duffelsbach, the little creek. Do you still remember the important creek? If not, then listen again to episode 8 about the water supply in Roman Cologne. Although St. George is located outside the city walls of that time, Cologne is already growing beyond its borders at this time due to population growth. The settlement of St. George here in the south serves to connect the area between the fortified city and the then Cologne suburb of Oversburg in terms of urban development. You have forgotten what Oversburg is? Oversburg is today's southern quarter, with the church of the same name, forming the southern part of today's old town. The church of St. Severin, which already stood as a cella memoria in late antiquity on a Roman burial ground. Have you forgotten? Then listen to episode number 23 again. There I have explained this more exactly. 
it was exactly in this area between the fortified city and the later seventh quarter that Anno had the foundation stone for the church of St. George laid as early as 1059 in the fourth year of his episcopal reign. This and a comparatively fast construction time led to the fact that he, Anno, can personally consecrate the columned basilica in 1074, one year before his death. Many founders had not been granted this opportunity. Due to the long construction times, many benefactors did not live to see the completion of their own buildings, like Abbas Ida two episodes earlier, who only saw the shell of her foundation St. Mary in the capital completed. By the way, the columns of this Column Basilica St. George were reused columns from former Roman buildings that were still standing around as ruins somewhere in the area. At that time, recycling wasn't only in, but also absolutely necessary due to the limited means and possibilities. St. George is still standing today, despite severe destruction during World War II and thanks to subsequent extensive reconstruction. Even recently, the church narrowly escaped a catastrophe. On 3rd of March 2009, so not very long ago, the Cologne City Archive building collapsed just a few meters away due to the defects in the subway construction of the subway there. Two people died and even though many documents could be saved that were stored in that archive, 5% of them are irrevocably lost. Oh, that still makes me so mad and sad, of course, because the accident could have been prevented. Back to the Church of St. George. Of course, it is also true here that the building received some alterations over the centuries. However, the central core of the church is still there. Unlike many other church buildings in Cologne, St. George was only extended and not demolished and rebuilt as in the case of St. Mary in the Capitol, St. Apostles or St. Cecilia. When you enter the church in St. George, you are in the original part of the church. The church still has three naves and a choir to the west and east. What is different, however, are the higher ceilings in this part of the church today. In Anno's time, there would have been a lower flat roof here. It would not be until about a hundred years later that the roof of the church would be vaulted in, thus raising it significantly. Today the church is dominated by a monumental western addition, which is a huge tower that serves as the church's western choir from the outside. However, this too was built only a hundred years after Anno lived. But we will come to the further conversions and extensions better in due course. It is interesting to whom Anno consecrated this church, St. George. St. George, the saint, was the absolute favorite saint of Archbishop Anno. Where Anno grew up, in the south of what is now Germany, the veneration of George was extremely popular. As a young clergyman, Anno had also attended his training school at the cathedral school in Bamberg, whose church was also dedicated to St. George. This probably explains Anno's fondness for the Dragon Slayer. Did I just say Dragon Slayer? Well, 
how I had looked forward to relating that. But nope. Saint George is considered dragon slayer nowadays, but that is attributed to him sometime after Anno's passing. In Anno's time, Saint George was only a normal saint, completely without dragon slaying and so on. But it would actually have fit so well because in Siegburg you can still examine Anno's bishop's crozier today in the treasury of the Church of Saint Servatius. A bishop's crozier is still part of the typical official equipment of every bishop. And behold, Anno's crozier forms a dragon's head at its tip, the so-called crook, which holds a bird in its mouth. The thing is really wonderful, carved from ivory and decorated with gilded silver with Latin inscriptions on it. But here the dragon stands not as I first mistakenly thought for the worship of St. George, but just as a symbol of evil and the devil from which the bearer of this staff, so Anno himself, must protect his community, or better said, flock. At this point, I would like to thank extremely the gentleman who gave me a free-of-charge tour for two hours there in this treasury chamber during the summer vacations. I have unfortunately forgotten his name, but if one of you ever stops by there in Siegburg, give him a nice greeting from me. St. George served as a church for the canons living there. For the common people, services were held in the directly neighboring parish church of St. Jacob, as was customary at the time. The canons could go directly from St. George to St. Jacob through a connecting passage. After the conquest of Cologne by French revolutionary troops at the end of the 18th century, the monastery of St. George was dissolved and the directly neighboring parish church of St. Jacob was demolished. Since then, St. George served as a parish church. The former connecting hall between the two places of worship serves as the entrance nowadays. Art historically significant for St. George was, among many things, especially the crucifix presented there, which was made in Anno's time, not to be confused with the Gero cross in the Cologne Cathedral. This crucifix in St. George was rediscovered in 1921 in the crypt of St. George after a long period of disappearance. The ravages of time and improper storage had left clear traces. Head, torso and legs are still present, arms and feet, however, have disappeared, and the cross itself from which the Messiah figure once hung are gone as well. The rest of the body is clearly marked by holes left by woodworms. The back of the head has a little hole, probably a relic was kept there. Here I would like to quote the description of the crucifix from the homepage of the Museum Schnüttgen, where the cross is exhibited nowadays, a museum for medieval Christian art. Quote, a challenge for the artist was to make clear in one figure, at the same time that Christ died as a man and as God has the power to overcome death. Over the centuries, even more emphasis is placed on suffering and dying or on the power and vitality of the figure. From the early Middle Ages to the Baroque period, however, 
both aspects of this contradiction are usually united in the figure of the crucified. End quote. That was wonderfully summarized. I couldn't have done it better. But whoever enters St. George today will see the crucifix completely whole and repaired. The whole body of Jesus on the cross can be seen here. This is because it is a copy. The original is nowadays in the Museum Schnützgen and is the only object that still exists from the time of the foundation of the monastery in the second half of the 11th century. Of all the Romanesque churches, I personally find St. George one of the lesser known, probably the basilicas of St. Mary in the capital and St. Severin, not far away, steal the show from this church building, which is somewhat more modest in its dimensions. But St. George has a charm of its own. See for yourself when you're in the vicinity. Maybe combined with a visit to the Ubian monument around the corner? Another project close to Anno's heart was the monastery church of St. Mary at Grados, to the east of Cologne Cathedral. At Grados is Latin and simply means to the steps. So St. Mary to the steps. The reason was simple. Remember episode number 17 when the Franks sacked and devastated Cologne in 355 AD? Massive amounts of rubble were dumped into the northeast corner of the city after the Roman reconquest a year later. This is precisely where Cologne Cathedral stands today. This way the Cathedral Hill was created, which is hardly recognizable today since the cathedral plate around the cathedral has almost made this hill disappear. Only when you look at the cathedral's choir from the outside in the east and then stand in the back of the lower-lying main train station do you realize that the cathedral is built on a hill. This is exactly where the monastery church of St. Mary at Grados was once built. The church remained in existence even when the construction of the much larger Cologne Cathedral the Gothic Cathedral began in 1248. Since construction began on the cathedral choir to the east, which was complete in the early 14th century, St. Mary at Grados has since bordered directly on what is now present-day Cologne Cathedral. Can't quite picture it? Nothing. I'll post appropriate footage on social media uh, in the next couple of days and on the homepage thehistoryofcologne.com. The building order of St. Mary at Grados had already been given by Anno's predecessor, Archbishop Herman II. In the same church, the Itzonid daughter and Queen of Poland, Richetza, discussed two episodes before, found her last resting place. Anno completed the construction and consecrated the church in 1057. Thirty canons from Dortmund, also lay monks, lived there. Its dimensions were rather modest compared to the other monastery churches in Cologne, with a length of about 55 meters and a width of 42 meters. It had almost a square shape. This was helped by the fact that, in addition to a double choir in the east and west, which was typical at the time, the church also had very wide side aisles. Anno gifted the monastery with numerous estates, which I do not want to list here. I myself do not know where most of these estates are located even today. But believe me, it was quite a lot. Although I am anticipating some things here, but in 
1080, the church building should already fall victim to a fire but was completely rebuilt after five years. St. Mary at Grados existed until the demolition of the building in 1817 after the monastery had already been dissolved a few years earlier during the French occupation. The tomb of Vichetza, among others, was then moved to Cologne Cathedral. Nowadays, nothing is left of St. Mary at Grados. Not only was it demolished in 1817, no, ten years later, in 1827, they also demolished the local part of the cathedral hill, so that not even the foundations of that church were left. Where the church once stood, nowadays there is the street leading to the main railway station or further towards the old town. A single column with a capital is all that remains of the former church. Today it stands very close to its former location in a small cemetery directly next to today's cathedral choir, where the members of the Cologne Cathedral chapter have been buried since 1925. I'll try to draw the exact location of the church on the interactive Google map that, is, that can be found in the show notes. And yes, also for this I will provide corresponding picture material. Fortunately, I took the pictures quite some time ago at the time of this uh, episode. The small area at the Cologne Cathedral is surrounded by construction fans as it is currently being renovated. And these were only two church buildings in Cologne. Elsewhere, Anno was also active within the territory of the Archbishopric of Cologne, but that would go beyond the scope of this episode. Where did Anno? get all the money for these monasteries that he built. Well, <laughs> mainly from his victory over the Itzonids and from the royal income he received as a regent after he had kidnapped Henry IV and held him prisoner for three years. Hardly any church in Cologne remained untouched in terms of furnishings or in some cases building form. St. Gerion, for example, I hope you still remember this church, was already 700 years old at that time. At that time, the church was probably in need of renovation. Anno, therefore, had Cologne's probably largest oldest church restored at a great expense. In 1069, he gave the Basilica a new elongated choir as an extension, including a large underground crypt. Both still exist today. Anno probably first needed some motivational help from the above, to put it mildly. Saint Geriam, the saint himself, and his martyred comrades of the Theban Legion complained in a dream while Anno was sleeping why their church in Cologne was in such a bad state of repair. Well, that's just how it can go, I guess. There would certainly be more examples of Anno's building enthusiasm, but let's leave it here for now. To this day, the history of Cologne among the general population often means, in simple terms, that the archbishops of Cologne had mostly ruled their city as tyrants like dictators. For centuries, therefore, the people of Cologne would have increasingly resisted the archbishop of the city, until, in the late Middle Ages, they would manage to shake off the archbishop's rule over the city, for good. First, 
What has just been said is not true. The Archbishop of Cologne would retain a tremendous political influence over the city of Cologne until the invasion of the French Revolutionary Army, although no longer all-encompassing as in the time of Bruno or Anno. Secondly, Cologne's rise in the Middle Ages to become one of the largest and at times one of the most important cities as an economic powerhouse in Europe and beyond was due precisely to that chief shepherd, the Archbishop of Cologne. The Archbishops of Cologne sustainably promoted the city's economic development with their proximity or even kinship to the ruling dynasties of the empire. They also promoted it with a targeted economic policy. Because no matter how pious an archbishop was, that's exactly what monastery foundations, including the construction of church buildings, were at that time. Very hardcore economic promotions. Scholars came together here. Valuable trade goods such as books, drawing, translations, documents, wine, beer and other agricultural products were produced and traded in a tightly ordered division of labor that couldn't be found anywhere else at that time in medieval Europe. This would not have been possible without a strong city leadership that was comparatively independent of the imperial court or other lords. But another second also clearly shows that there was a change of heart among the economically successful non-clerical people, especially among the merchants of the city of Cologne. Those who made it possible for people in their city to trade successfully on their own who brought it to a certain prosperity through their own diligence and traveled to many parts of the then-known world, did not allow themselves to be treated like a simple peasant, like someone who could be intimidated with stories about the devil in church on Sunday. No, Anno would learn at the end of his life that even a servant of God on earth, no matter how powerful he was on this earth, had certain limits not only by the Lord himself, but also by his own subjects. In the next episode, seemingly out of nowhere, an uprising against Anna II breaks out in Cologne in 1074. An uprising that would be extremely dicey for the Archbishop of Cologne. His own life was on a knife edge. At one point, only the wooden gate of Cologne Cathedral stood between him and an angry mob that wanted to simply kill him. How this could happen and how this conflict will end and why in retrospect it will be formative, perhaps mistakenly, for the self-image of the city's history, you will learn in the next episode. And oh boy, have I been looking forward to telling you all about the events of 1074 and that since I started this podcast. By the way, the events will lead us to that underground parking garage under the Cologne Cathedral whose video of me I did on that subject on TikTok and Instagram now has over 620,000 views. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to this podcast in your podcast app. It's the fastest and most importantly free way you can help me spread the word about this podcast. Know someone who is also in love with Cologne history? then let them know that this little podcast exists just for them. Many thanks as always to my Patreons who throw one or a few more euros into my head per episode. 
Just the other day, I was able to buy a second microphone and two-thirds of it were paid by your honorable donations. So I can do interview episodes for this podcast very soon. I just have to find someone who wants to talk with me. If you have any idea, let me know. Email address you can find in the show notes. And very important, really, folks, rate this podcast episode if this is possible in your podcast app, like Apple Podcast or Spotify. I can see the download numbers compared to the few ratings I got for this show. There's more to it. Come on, please. I would be infinitively grateful to you guys. Thanks for listening. Recommend me, don't forget. And auf Wiedersehen and sorry for the delay. Thank you. And as I said already, auf Wiedersehen.